Hello and welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. Welcome to Series 2. Yay! How would you summarise our podcast, Danielle? Oh, I think we, we get to chat to some great people who are, who are basically transforming the way science is shared and how their research is connected with their emotion and experiences. And how that can ultimately change the world, not uh, the world of science, but also the actual world around us. Absolutely, yeah. And how they can bring the public with them as well. I find it a very inspiring project to work on. Yeah, me too, me too. Mainly because I'm working with you, Marianne. Oh, shut up, you. <laughs> well, well, welcome to series two, listeners. <laughs> You're welcome to the loving um, with me and Danielle. Okay, so in today's episode, though, so dial it down for a minute, uh, we thought we'd look at the subject of anger and how to handle things like frustration, difficult conversations and differences of opinion. And it's not our usual style, is it, Marianne? In this, we we often focus on on the positives in this study shows, don't we? But actually, we've got to be realistic, haven't we? And people do get angry in science. Yeah, and it's it's difficult. Sometimes it's people getting angry who work in science, being angry at people who work in science. And then other times it's a frustration about how science is being interpreted or or represented in society more widely. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time you were angry doing your research? Ooh, um, last year I got really, really angry. Not Not at my research, but more at my co-researchers. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, sounds fruity. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I I had a a really important research meeting um, in Europe and I needed to present at it. And I couldn't attend in person because it coincided with the day that Elizabeth, my daughter, had her sort of stay and play session at um, at the reception class. So so sort of in preparation for, for starting reception. So I asked the conference if I could present remotely, which is usually fine. Loads of people do it. But when I connected, I basically heard colleagues from other institutions slagging me off and, and discussing <laughs> my, my lack of commitment to the research agenda because I couldn't be bothered to attend in person. Wow. Now, and they're, they're speaking about an eminent and award-winning professor of engineering here. <laughs> I mean, it was really frustrating. And it was one of those where, you know, should I keep listening? Because they don't know I'm listening or, <laughs> you know, but I was quite intrigued and, and really shocked, actually, you know, because That's loads appalling. of people, yeah, I wasn't the only person, you know, in the conference that was presenting remotely. And and when I when I tried to explain that it was, you know, the reason, you know, I'm really sorry I couldn't attend in person. You know, I have childcare commitments. They just didn't get it. They were like, Oh, right. But it's just that, you know, so many people have, have managed to get here in person. And you're like, well, wow. yeah, but I've just told you I've got childcare commitments. You know, but my kid is important and I love her, you morons. Yeah. And it was this idea that, that attending the conference in person was a measure of the commitment to my research. And that made me really, really angry because it's no measure of commitment. That's a barrier to access. That's a barrier to information. That's a barrier to collaboration. God, I'm angry too now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I tell you what else makes me annoyed in science: misinformation. Yes, that really, really annoys me. Where there's the vacuum of absolute fact, people try and fill it with fictional things. So if you take the, 
you know, at the moment we have COVID-19 um, and the amount of misinformation out there is incredible. Go on, go on. What's your best worst one? Drinking cow urine can cure COVID-19. It has to be cow urine. You don't do that. Like what? Why, Danielle? (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. I think people are clutching. They're searching for meaning, and and this is this is the question, isn't it? Like, if people are out there looking on the internet or talking to their friends about what they ought to think and what things are actually true, if scientists with actual research aren't in that space, then the space gets filled up with other folk. Mm. To get more insight into the subject of misinformation, I spoke to our first guest, Naomi Oreskes, who is a professor of the history of science and affiliated professor of earth and planetary sciences at Harvard University. Naomi's written some really interesting books. One was is called Why Trust Science? And the other she co-wrote all about misinformation with um, Eric Conway, and it's called Merchants of Doubt. Here's what she had to tell me. In Merchants of Doubt, we were trying to understand why educated and intelligent people would reject the scientific evidence of climate change. And what we discovered was that it was a part of a much larger story of science denial, going back to the tobacco industry, in which the private sector had tried to deny science that showed the dangers of their products. And what we showed in the book was that that initial economic motivation, that initial greed, later joined forces with an ideological drive to promote the idea of limited government and reject the role of government in protecting people and their health and their lives. And the tragic outcome of this, which we see today, is a disabled governmental function in which now around the world, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are dying from a pandemic that could have been much less deadly had it been controlled early, which meant if Governments had paid more attention to what scientists were telling them back in December, January, when this pandemic first broke out. Is it is it simply greed that promotes smart people misusing science as a tool, spreading it's, this misinformation, spreading doubt? Doubt mongering is not just motivated by greed. Greed plays a role, but the reason it's been so effective, particularly in the United States in the last forty years, is a kind of toxic blend of ideology and money. So what we showed in Merchants of Doubt was that the original Merchants of Doubt were not motivated by money. They were motivated by the ideology of market fundamentalism, the belief that our problems are best left to be solved by the private sector, and that if the government intervenes in the marketplace, it's a threat to our personal freedom. But it was a kind of minority view for a long time until the tobacco industry and the fossil fuel industry started pumping large amounts of money into the promotion of that ideology because they saw it as in their own self-interest. So that combination of money and ideology proved to be very powerful. The money got the message out through think tanks, through advertising, through public relations firm. Um, But the ideology gave it a kind of intellectual credibility and intellectual respectability that made it seem as if it wasn't just pure greed, which most of us would have recognized, made it seem as if there was a principled argument behind it. Do you think scientists and research institutions have blood on their hands? Because you can be paid for funding research and not necessarily disclose those sources of funding, that institutions take the money and don't ask too many questions. 
Well, scientists definitely bear some responsibility. We certainly know that some scientists are inappropriately influenced by funding. And I think the scientific community needs to take more seriously than it has up until now uh, the effects, the potentially corrosive effects of uh, interested funding. But I still think the largest responsibility is not on the corrupted, but the corruptors. The drivers are the fossil fuel industry, the pesticide companies that are driving misleading narratives. They try to give their false narratives credibility by hiring scientists or by funding confounding scientific studies. And so certainly the scientists who participate in that are not people that I would admire or respect. But I still think that if you ask what's the driving cause, the driving cause is with those companies that are deliberately promoting disinformation, deliberately trying to confound the picture. That's where I place the lion's share of the blame. Let's make it 80-20 or 90-10. The more we make that reality uh, apparent to, to members of the public, members of society, does that feed the legitimate fear that they have that science isn't to be trusted and that scientists aren't to be trusted? I don't think so, because I think anyone who reads Merchants of Doubt sees the way in which the vast, vast majority of the scientific community did incredibly high quality work on acid rain, on the ozone hole, on climate change, on pesticides. And the scientific community we show in the book worked incredibly hard to try to communicate effectively with the American people and broader publics about what their scientific findings were. But they were stymied by the greater funding and the greater power of the fossil fuel industry, the pesticide industry, and the tobacco industry. So could scientists be smarter in their messaging? Absolutely. And this has been one of my messages to the scientific community. What we've learned from the tobacco story, from the climate change story, is you can't just publish your work in scientific journals and think that that's sufficient. Not when there are people out there who are paying hundreds of millions of dollars in some case to spread disinformation. It's just an incredibly unlevel playing field. People listening to this may well agree and they hear things that really resonate. They're angry, they're frustrated. How do they turn that into action? How do they turn that into something positive? Well, I think the important thing to remember is the whole point of confusion and disinformation is to disable us. It's to discourage us from acting. And so the most important thing we can do is not be discouraged. They want us to believe that we don't have an alternative, but we do. There are things we can do on a personal level, like our next car should be an electric car, or if we're a homeowner, we can um, put solar panels on our roofs. But for most of us, the biggest differences we can make are not things we can do individually. There are structural changes in the way we generate electricity, in the way we subsidize fossil fuels. And for that, people have to become politically involved. There's no science that by itself fixes the climate change problem. Climate change is now essentially a political and social and cultural issue. And that means we have to get politically engaged. And so at the risk of, you know, being political, but I think that's where this work has led me, means we have to vote. We have to vote for people who will act on climate and we have to reject the policies of disinformation, the policies of denial, and call them out for what they are. Is it a false dichotomy for a scientist to say, well, I do science, I don't do politics? Can those two things be separated now? Well, that's a tricky one. I I certainly respect the reasons why scientists want to do science. It's what's It's what we've trained to do. It's what we've learned to do. It's what we're good at. So if a scientist says, look, 
I'm most effective doing my science. I, I don't criticize that. I understand that. But what those people have to do, though, is understand that in addition to the science, we also need the political component. They could spend a small portion of their work doing outreach and communication, or they could simply give money to political organizations, or they could simply give moral support to people who do the political work. So even if we don't want to be the one who's out in public doing the communication or the political work, we can find ways to support the people who are doing that work. So that was Naomi Oreskes, author of Why Trust Science and co-author of Merchants of Doubt, both well worth a read. Danielle, what did you think about what Naomi said? I think she had some really great things to say, didn't she? I mean, I, I really like the the point of confusion and disinformation is to disable us and discourage us from, from acting. And so the really important message there is to make sure that we don't get discouraged. I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Marianne, big question for you here. What does it mean to be human? Ooh, now this is my background. I studied anthropology, so I could like (laughs) go and go on this one. Um, What does it mean to be human on a personal level? I think um, to be constantly creative as social animals. Oh, nice. I quite like that. I quite like that because it fits with... um, when you're studying robotics or something, it's the creativity side that people use as a distinction between robots and humans. Yeah. Okay, so the reason I ask you that is because what does it mean to be human is a question put to members of the public by our next guest. I'm Rick Potts and I'm a paleoanthropologist. I direct the Human Origins Program at the National Museum of Natural History Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. These are the sorts of answers he gets from the public when he asks, what does it mean to be human? On our website, for example, uh, humanorigins.si.edu, you can find tens of thousands of people's answers to that question. They can range from um, single word answers uh, such as chocolate, taxes, (laughs) Uh, God, (laughs) to almost entire PhD theses uh, that are written in the smallest possible spaces. People have a huge range of opinions uh, about it. One of my favorite examples of what it means to be human that we practice uh, almost every day is that when when we go into a uh, shopping in a, a food store, a grocery store, we don't just sit down in the aisles, rip open packages and start eating right away. But instead, we take it some other place. Uh, with the expectation of some sort of sharing of food. Mm. And we even have the capacity to share food with people we don't even know. Part of Rick's job is fieldwork, conducting fossil and archaeological digs all around the world. But another part of what he does is developing public understanding of science. And this is a mix of public lecturing and curating exhibitions. Now, the Smithsonian is really popular. Eight million people visit every year. And since they opened the whole of human origins 10 years ago, Rick estimates that around 45 to 50 million people have visited. However, Rick eventually realised that the one stationary exhibition wasn't quite doing the job. So he thought it was time to hit the road. It really dawned on me that, well, not everyone can come to Washington, D.C., and so let's start at least in uh, this country, in the U.S., 
uh, with creating a traveling version of the exhibit uh, and engaging audiences that way in a, a much more um, direct uh, way where we uh, we go to um, libraries around the country this, uh, who uh, want the exhibit and to engage in their uh, communities uh, on the subject of human evolution. <laughs> and well, part of our goal is to reach as many audiences as we can where the communities and the libraries identify themselves as, uh, this is a difficult subject for our community. Mm. Human evolution, of course, is one of the highest bars in the public understanding of science. This is certainly the case in the U.S. Uh, with regard to acceptance, uh, belief, um, understanding of uh, the subject of human evolution, while at the same time being one of the most vibrant fields of science. I was really interested to find out how Rick manages to start these conversations where he's able to impart information that he knows his audience might initially be resistant to. It turns out that it starts with not thinking of it as imparting knowledge. We have um, a variety of uh, approaches, a real commitment to respectful conversation. We do not uh, adhere to the knowledge deficit model of people's understanding of the world, that all you have to do is hit them over the head with more evidence, and surely they will understand mm -hmm. uh, that it simply does not work. Uh, but rather, um, our first technique is to listen, listen to um, their interests, their concerns. Uh, the vast majority of people we meet are fans of the subject. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they know much about the subject of human evolution, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, they're there in order to uh, to learn. And people who are coming to the subject because they're curious and yet have been told that they should feel conflict about the subject of evolution, it's pretty easy conversation to have with people in, in that category, so to speak. Mm. For people who come for a fight, what we found is that people tend to model their own behavior, their own inter interactions and, and comments based on what they see us as scientists bringing to the, to the subject. Oh, that's really interesting. And so, yeah, and so the uh, respectfulness, the ability to listen, the interest in finding out, well, what do you think? Is, uh, is really very, very important. The Exploring Human Origins Tour visited communities where perhaps they didn't have much access to this kind of information without a university close by or perhaps a strong religious community that finds evolution at odds with their beliefs. Surprisingly, lots of communities self-identified that evolution was a tough subject for them, but they were keen to find out more. And part of Rick's job involved engaging influential local figures. In, in one of the communities, for example, that comes to mind, um, there was, uh, in addition to the town hall meeting, we had a clergy conversation. Actually, we held clergy private tours of the exhibition and conversations in all of those communities. But one in particular, there was uh, an uh, individual who, um, who basically said to us, well, you know, when we asked, what, what do you all think? He said, well, I think you're all going to be damned to hell. Hmm. And, he, you know, he said it in the nicest possible way, is that all we could do was sort of smile and nod. <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, one of the things that emerges here is that this, we never put ourselves in a one-on-one -on -one debate. Um, that, again, seems to always devolve into a, uh, a knowledge deficit model of, you know, well, let me tell you, you know, the evidence. 
kind of thing. Instead, we always engage groups of people. And in the clergy tour, even when that pastor said that to us, there were other members of clergy as devout as this person was and coming from churches as conservative as his mm. who said, now, wait a second. I think that this subject personally is really interesting, and my congregation should know about this particular subject. Mm. Um, and even if they don't believe it, at least they would, you know, they, they can see, well, what, what's, what's here. Now, if we're talking about anger here, Rick and his team have really mastered the art of changing conflict into conversation. Here's how they do it. First of all, we don't make it a debate. We actually change the, uh, the nature of the conversation. We establish a view in, in talking with people that both religion and science sometimes stand up to one another and demand a, a standard of truth that if it's not accepted by the other, leads to dismissal of the other. And once you begin on that level, you're never going to change and get away from the conflict mm, mode. Mm. But you have to show your commitment to wanting an engagement mode and a conversation mode. And as they say, listen and pay attention to people's interests and concerns. But at the same time, it requires, you know, listening to if someone stands up as they have in some of our town hall meetings and says, well, I, I know all about human origins and then recites Genesis and one and part of Genesis two. In one particular example, I remember about that. There was a person who was there from that individual's same church who stood up and said, you know, I've been through the exhibit here, the traveling exhibit, and I've been to the exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington. And I find it the most awe-inspiring thing I've ever seen before. And the science is wonderful. And now I know how God did it. Oh, and that it nice. did it through these, this aspect of what scientists call evolution. And I just find that amazing. And that's a person from the same church. In fact, I think they said they lived across the street from one another. <laughs> and so all of a sudden you had a person in that community modeling the idea that you do not have to make it a, con a matter of conflict, but you can make it a matter of how do I put two and two together here? Now, this all really sounds very level-headed and logical, which is very impressive. So I wanted to know whether he's ever gotten frustrated with someone who is refusing to meet him halfway. Uh, no, I don't get frustrated by that. And in fact, I usually try to stick with the conversation as I did. I, I remember in one instance um, to the point where... It was then followed by the town hall meeting in one one place in the state of Pennsylvania, rural a rural a community. And during the community conversation, the town hall meeting, even though we had had sort of a, a, a rough conversation right before it, but I stuck with it, that at the end of it, he said, well, you know, I, I don't know much about this subject, but I have now had a chance to talk with Dr. Potts. And all I know is that I would be really delighted any time to go out and have a hamburger with him. Oh, nice. And it brought, <laughs> it brought the house down and I, my heart melted <laughs> yeah. that, okay, we, we disagreed, but, you know, he would be interested in talking with me some more. And so that, again, should be counted as a success. What do you think, Marianne? I, I was really, when I was chatting to him, I was really surprised by how calm he was. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough gig, isn't it? Taking a, a kind of a travelling show to places that 
don't want necessarily to know about what you're trying to tell them about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that's the whole point, isn't it? That Rick sees it not as a point of conflict, but as an opportunity to start a conversation. And that's key, I think. I mean, he sounds so calm. He sounds like just such a cruisy guy who doesn't let it get under his skin. And I guess that's, you know, if you kind of look at it as as an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who otherwise might never think about those ideas, then you're you're just kind of giving them up for lost and you're almost acknowledging and, and agreeing that science and religion are enemies. Whereas yeah. Rick is going, no, they don't have to be. Yeah. And I think maybe some of the... Um, some of the audiences that he goes to, they sort of think, oh, here comes the science basher to bash the Bible bashers, you know. And and when when he doesn't do that, you know, when it's much more about a conversation and he's genuinely interested in their views and opinions, they sort of go, oh, actually, maybe this isn't, maybe this is okay. Well done, Rick. The work that, that he and his team are doing is so important. Mm. I, I love it. Okay, so our third shot in the arm of frustration, conflict and differences of opinion is when scientists are asked to be expert witnesses. So that might specifically be in a court of law or if you're called to give evidence to a committee or politicians in a public hearing or town hall, something like that. But there's also loads of circumstances which are slightly less litigious but equally adversarial. I mean, that might be as simple as addressing your family over Christmas dinner. Basically, it's times when it would really help to be able to talk as clearly and as persuasively as a top lawyer, but with added science. A group of lawyers realised that it could really help scientists if they could practice the skills before they find themselves in the dock. So they founded the National Science Foundation's Expert Witness Training Academy, I spoke to one of the co-directors of the programme to find out a bit more. I'm Jim Hilbert. I'm a professor of law in the United States at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. I'm also co-director of the Expert Witness Training Academy in St. Paul, Minnesota. What is the Expert Witness Training Academy? This is an annual workshop designed for climate scientists to focus on how to better communicate their science It's meant to be high stakes and high pressure because that is often where some of the big decisions are made that involve scientists. And so we are are encouraging folks to learn how to communicate in these sort of settings because we think there is so much at stake when they are in these settings that a little bit of practice and instruction will go a long way. So when the real thing happens, they're ready. Talk me through what you do to your scientists who enroll in your program. Well, let me just start with the understanding that that people like this because it will sound cruel when I tell you, but we try to replicate what these situations are like. And we bring in trial attorneys, judges, politicians to run the scientists through the paces of what this communication is like. So when they have to do it for real, they know how to do it even better than they do now. So we try to balance some instruction up front. We then have some exercises and simulations that are very much like the sorts of things they might find themselves in, or at least in scenarios that give them a chance to work on these skills. And then there's a lot of intensive feedback, one-on-one feedback, 
from instructors we bring in, communication experts, as well as the judges and trial attorneys and politicians, to try to get the scientists to polish their skills and to see areas where they can improve. We use video, we use audio, and at the very end, we put them through a full jury trial, and then they can see how the jurors respond to what they tried to communicate and get a sense of how much they've achieved over the week. I mean, that sounds somewhere between absolutely awful and quite a lot of fun, depending on how well it goes for you. What kind of reactions do, do the participants have? Well, thank you for the, the question to allow me to be a little self-serving. Uh, it is, it is, it's not somewhere between torture and enjoyment. It's actually both. And I, and I think, <laughs> and I think the, the participating scientists enjoy it more than they ever thought they would. And, and to be honest, I mean, to be honest, we rely on participants from the past in recommending people for the next workshops. So we don't do any recruiting or publicizing or any of that. And we are overrun every year with recommendations. And, and that's great. I take that as a sign that people thought it was a valuable and enjoyable experience. I mean, the, the good news is scientists are, by and large, super intelligent, very capable, hard workers. So they are just destined to be effective communicators if we can give a little instruction and practice on how to do so. Is it a question of confidence or is it a kind of just feeling like you ought to be doing this and that you can do this? And how much of it is it actually the technical skill of doing it well? Well, I think that's the good news. I think the good news is it is a technical skill. I think for, for many folks, it's just enough to remember you're not communicating to scientists. And sometimes it's just basic kinds of obvious things that your listeners probably would expect. But let's not use scientific jargon. Use terminology that people will understand. Try to connect with people from their perspective. If you are talking to a legislative panel in a rural state in, in, the, in the United States, in a place with lots of farms and, and agriculture, try to connect your science in some ways to the things that they'll care about. These are pretty basic lessons in communication. So I think it's good news. These are not mysteries, but it bears some encouragement for people to, to remember those things and, frankly, to practice them. Do you think... Some of it comes down to a, a reticence that, that some scientists have about sticking to the science. The idea that actually if they just stick to the science, they try and keep it objective, then that's a better way of being a public servant. Whereas actually what you're saying is you need to work out how to land your message. You need to think about your audience. These are sort of tips that either would make sense to a lawyer attempting to convince a, a jury or a marketer attempting to convince a a consumer to buy their thing, buy the product. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a really important point. I, I think people can be rather put off by the notion that we need you to dial back the science and dial up the sales talk. And, and I, I would not encourage that. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't consider it sales talk. I, I think part of the challenge is a, is a cultural divide. And for example, I mean, just terminology. The word uncertainty for scientists has a very practical meaning. We want to understand, to the extent I understand, the level of uncertainty built into what we know. 
And, and for many studies, 95% uncertainty is a very compelling result. It is very likely the case. For lawyers, for journalists, for other people in the community, 95% and uncertainty suggests uh, a lack of understanding. I mean, nobody would get on an airplane that only had a 95% chance of successfully making it to its landing point safely. But for scientists, 95% is a very comforting number. So just some of these cultural divides get in the way. Okay, so if I'm a researcher, I'm sitting in social isolation somewhere in the world. What can I do to better prepare myself as a, I suppose, a, a paper exercise or, or something that I can do on my own terms to, to work out what I ought to be saying and how? It's a really good question because I think one of the challenges scientists have is they often are working in isolation and they feel very isolated. Now, I know we, we mentioned the danger of talking only to other scientists and communicating as if everyone has a science degree, but there is a really important value in connecting with other scientists and sharing your work and sharing what you're doing and talking about opportunities to use your work to not just understand things better, but to help other people understand what you're doing. And then I think part of it also is making yourself available to media and policymakers so that they know anytime something is in this area, you can be a resource to them. And that, and that can be just reaching out directly. The, the person at the legislature who is doing water policy, I'm studying XYZ and it relates to water. Anytime you need anything, please let me know. And, and we know how much policymakers and journalists in particular need support in understanding science. They will take you up on it. And all of a sudden you become much more relevant to that world than you thought was possible. There you go, Danielle. You can be more relevant to the world than you ever thought possible. <laughs> well, I think it's brilliant. I, I love what, what Jim's doing. So when he was talking about it, I'm like, would I like to do it? You know, would I, would I think it was fun? Or, And I, I think it would be, you know, as, as he describes it, actually, simultaneously torture and enjoyment. <laughs> the other thing from Jim that I've taken away is that it can really help scientists to look outside of science to see what's important, to see what best practice skills there are in terms of communication and getting that message across. Yeah, I think that's really nice. You get that sort of non-science perspective then, don't you? And that's really important for a scientist if they want to be able to communicate their research to non-scientists. Yeah. So I think this has been an absolute stellar what a whipping start to yeah, the series too. We've started very well. That is it for episode one. Thank you so much for listening to This Study Shows. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. See you on the next one. Bye. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Mariana Hotter and me, Danielle George. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.